0: You're listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. If you know any way that I can improve my content for you, the listener, shoot me a message on Twitter at Ellis a. Tucci. I would love to hear from you. To catch up on all my past episodes and hear new ones every week, subscribe to the show on Spotify, follow it on Apple Podcasts, or visit hiddenhistory.show. If you enjoy what I do, I'd love it if you left for a view and shared it with your friends. And now, on to the show. I said at the beginning of last episode that I really enjoyed doing longer multi-part series on a single subject, so I decided that this week, and for, well, the indeterminate future, I was going to dive right back into a brand new miniseries. You may have seen it in the news this week, but researchers in Tulsa, Oklahoma have found a mass grave that they believe holds the bodies of those murdered in the 1921 Tulsa race riot. So this week, I'm going to start out talking about Tulsa, and then next week, I'm going all the way back to the beginning to talk about the history of racial persecution and racial violence in North America. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to Episode 53, Black Wall Street. The 1921 Tulsa Massacre is different from a large amount of other race riots, and for a number of reasons. It was exceptional in its brutality, and unique in its intensity. For decades after the burning and pillaging of 35 square blocks, after the murder of hundreds, Some might say that it is unique in our societal ignorance of its occurrence. This, unfortunately, is not the case. Yes, it's true that for scores of years the massacre wasn't talked about, even in private. It's true that it wasn't taught in schools, causing generations of children to grow up ignorant of its existence. What is unfortunate is that such denial, the feigning of ignorance, Is a common practice surrounding the vast racial injustices perpetrated by the people of this country. Historian William Tuttle once wrote that, quote, the optimist cannot take solace in the past. So, let's start at the beginning. On May 28, 1830, President Andrew Jackson signed the Indian Removal Act into law Furthering the American government's systematic genocide of the Native Americans, enforcing the Cherokee, Chicksaw, Choctaw, Creek, and Seminole, a conglomeration which the government dubbed the quote, Five Civilized Tribes, to march the Trail of Tears to a newly compartmentalized land called Indian Territory. You may be wondering why I'm starting so far in the past, well, here's your answer. There's a reason that the government considered these five tribes as civilized, which, side note, is incredibly ethnocentric and dismisses non-Western societal constructs. That reason was that American colonists had successfully warped the cultures of these tribes to resemble their own. One of the things that came with the adoption of American ideals and customs was the adoption of American chattel slavery. Beginning with Columbus's landfall in the Bahamas, Native Americans were subject to a system of brutal slavery, but that began to change in 1619, with the introduction of the first African slaves into North America. Enslavement of Native Americans began to wane, and the romanticized idea of the Native American as the quote, noble savage, begins to emerge and be adopted by the colonizers. One of the things that undoubtedly helped contribute to the creation of this myth was the willingness of certain tribes to westernize in the face of total eradication. To the colonists, one of the things that signified the presence of civilization was the presence of slaves. They were a symbol of wealth and of commitment to the propagation of capital at all costs. So when the five tribes were forced into a death march across the nation, their slaves were forced to go with them. And so when the area that would become Tulsa was settled between 1828 and 1836 by members of the Creek tribe, it was established with an enslaved black population. Throughout the following decades, there were a number of slave revolts, including a major revolt in 1842 that involved a planned escape to Mexico, which had abolished the institution of slavery in 1829. When the American Civil War came, The five tribes who had walked the trail of tears allied themselves with the confederacy in an attempt to protect their right to own slaves if you think the civil war was about anything else besides slavery please do not listen to my show i don't care if i lose you as a listener because i really don't super want white supremacists to enjoy my content sorry that's just something that that i as as a history guy kind of feel very strongly about anyway The Five Tribes' alliance with the Confederacy emerged largely after August 10, 1861, when the Confederate Army won the Battle of Wilson's Creek in Missouri, the first major battle west of the Mississippi. Over the course of the ensuing war, a number of native soldiers, and in one case, an entire regiment, defected to the Union Army. All throughout this period, the settlement of Tulsi, meaning Old Town in the Creek language, was slowly growing larger and larger. Even though the town was in land specifically designated for Native Americans, which the federal government guaranteed would be free from white settlers, the proportion of Black and Native Americans was slowly shrinking in the face of a growing white population. This was largely due to the Colonialist Homestead Act of 1862, legalizing the laying of claim to 150 acres of, quote, unclaimed land. This was in itself an expansion of the Preemption Act of 1841. The passage of the Homestead Act inspired the creation of what was called the Boomer Movement, which believed the land in the center of Indian territory, which had not been settled by any of the tribes, was quote, unclaimed public land. In 1879, once again proving that boomers are the worst, they descended on the center of Indian territory, leading violent raids to force the government to condone colonization. Eventually, they did, and in 1885, Grover Cleveland signed the third iteration of the Indian Appropriations Act into law, which allowed individual Native Americans and entire tribes to sell the land that they had been assigned. In reality, this opened the door for increasingly aggressive colonization as settlers coerced the tribes to sell through acts of violence. This would be followed by the Indian Appropriations Act of 1889, again signed by Grover Cleveland, which opened the center of modern day Oklahoma to white colonization. Over the course of the next two decades, the federal government would open the reservations of the Iowa, Sac and Fox, Potawatomi, Shawnee, Cheyenne, Arapaho, Cherokee, and Kickapoo tribes to white settlers, causing a series of vicious land rushes, with the last one starting in 1895. In 1907, Indian Territory, which the federal government had sworn would be the unassailable claim of the five tribes in perpetuity, was annexed as the state of Oklahoma. Population, 7,289. By 1910 that number had more than doubled to over 18,000 thanks in no small part due to black Americans who sought to escape the oppression of southern Jim Crow laws. The black residents of Tulsa lived overwhelmingly in the area surrounding Greenwood Avenue, which was separated from the white part of the city by railroad tracks. It's a long street that extends for about a mile, and as more and more people flocked to Greenwood Avenue, Entranced by the promises of opportunity in Oklahoma, it quickly grew to become the nerve center of black life within the city, and one of the most prosperous black communities in the country. It became known as Black Wall Street. The white citizens of Tulsa came up with their own pejorative name for it, Little Africa. It housed theaters, grocery stores, apartments, fine homes, soda fountains, dentists, lawyers, doctors, and much more. It transformed life in the city, and became like almost nowhere else in the nation. By 1921, the Greenwood neighborhood was home to over 10,000 residents. By the end of that year, it would all be gone. In 1921, tensions in Tulsa were a few degrees away from boiling. An economic boom in the city had led to the elevation of many black Tulsans to the middle and upper middle class, and there was an influx of black servicemen returning to Oklahoma after the end of the Great War. In response to both of these, and many other harmless factors, the KKK decided that it would be a good idea to start rebounding in the new state, and oversaw the creation of a new campaign of racial terror throughout Oklahoma. And that brings us to May 30th, 1921. Supposedly, at 4 p.m., a 19-year-old black shoeshiner by the name of Dick Rowland walked to the Drexel Building downtown to go to the bathroom on the top floor, the only nearby restroom that he was allowed to use. An employee of a clothing store on the first floor claimed that he heard a woman scream and saw Roland fleeing the scene. He claimed that the elevator operator, a 17-year-old girl named Sarah Page, told him that she was assaulted. There is great speculation as to what exactly happened in that elevator, But even the Tulsa police didn't claim it was an assault. Paige herself declined to press charges. The police decided to conduct a low-visibility investigation while searching across the town for Dick Rowland. The next day, he was arrested on Greenwood Avenue, and even though the police attempted to keep the case quiet, the Tulsa Tribune caught wind, printing a number of inflammatory headlines calling for his lynching. Between 6 and 7 p.m. on May 31st, a crowd of white Tulsans assembled in the street outside the city courthouse. By 9 o'clock, an estimated 400 were itching for blood outside. At the same time, news of the lynch mob reached Greenwood, causing a number of black residents to arm themselves and confront the crowd at the courthouse. By 10.30, the lynch mob had grown to number in the thousands, and had already attempted to seize weapons from the Tulsa National Guard Armory. Between 50 and 75 National Guardsmen descended on the courthouse, but were turned away by a police force that was making no serious attempts to defuse or control the crowd. While the chief of police had little concern about the state of the white mob, he was intensely focused on convincing the black Tulsans from Greenwood to leave the scene. Eventually, he succeeded, but when the men turned to leave, a member of the white mob attempted to grab a pistol from a black veteran. A shot rang out, and suddenly all hell let loose. Walter White, a member of the NAACP, said that in the initial firefight, a dozen people died. Overwhelmed by the mob, the men began to move back towards Greenwood. While the white thugs prevented ambulances from helping injured black men. By 3am the National Guard had been mobilized to Tulsa, but it was too late. By that point the city was a war zone. Local politician Wyatt Brady, a member of the Ku Klux Klan, used the riot as an opportunity to tar and feather black Tulsans. The police actually captured black men and brought them directly to the KKK. Thousands of whites began to prod at the borders of Greenwood, and initially were pushed back by the heavily armed population. Eventually, though, as the sun began to rise, the rioters invaded the neighborhood, going from house to house to loot, murder, and set the buildings alight. The white rioters held firemen at gunpoint to prevent them from stopping the flames in Greenwood. At 5 in the morning on June 1st, the rioters launched a full-scale attack on the neighborhood, killing indiscriminately. Those who were not shot were rounded up and taken to makeshift detention centers. And then came the planes. From a small airfield outside the city, aircraft began to descend on Greenwood. They were packed to the gills with white rioters, who shot at and dropped firebombs on both buildings and fleeing families. The police claimed that the airplanes were there to monitor the situation and, quote, prevent an uprising. Over the course of 16 hours, the entire neighborhood was reduced to ash. The official death count, as reported by the city of Tulsa, stands at 39. But intentional underreporting has led to estimates of approximately 300 Over 800 residents of Greenwood were hospitalized and the destruction of the neighborhood rendered over 10,000 people homeless. The National Guard arrived in Tulsa at 9.15 in the morning, and at 11.49, they declared martial law throughout the city and began working towards suppression of the riot. The city government of Tulsa saw the total destruction of Greenwood as a boon and used it to advance their policy objectives. The construction of a large new rail depot in the neighborhood began in 1923. The city justified it by claiming that it would create a much-desired buffer between the black and white neighborhoods. For over half a century, the government of Tulsa, as well as the private entities within the city, pretended that the massacre had never happened. No whites were ever prosecuted for their actions during the riot, and as the years passed, newspapers refused to print anything that acknowledged the existence of the massacre. Black Wall Street was eventually rebuilt, in spite of governmental obstruction to the rebuilding effort, once more becoming a thriving community until the 1960s, when the introduction of desegregation legislation allowed Black Tulsans to move freely throughout the city. It wouldn't be until 1996, almost 75 years after the massacre, that the city government authorized an investigation into it. In 2001, 80 years after the massacre took place, the city commission recommended five things. Reparations to survivors of the massacre. Reparations to descendants of the survivors of the massacre. A scholarship fund for those impacted by the massacre. The creation of an economic development zone in Greenwood, and a memorial recognizing the victims of the massacre. In 2004, James Ellison, a senior district judge, ruled that survivors of and those impacted by the Tulsa massacre of 1921 could not seek reparations because the statute of limitations had expired. Otis Clark, a survivor of the riot who had seen the homes of his parents and grandparents burned to the ground, was there to witness the decision. He died in 2012 at the age of 109. This is the end of the episode, and as you go back out into the world, I want you to think about the nature of injustice and structural oppression. I want you to think about how the ways we perpetuate structural violence have changed since 1921 and how they've stayed the same. How should we atone for the crimes of those who we may not be at all related to, but whose actions have reinforced power structures that are beneficial to the majority? The optimist cannot take solace in the past. This Is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History. Signing off.